Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. A fix is coming for federal contracting. Democratic Senator Gary Peters and Republican Joni Ernst are trying to correct a misunderstanding of congressional intent when it comes to how and when agencies should consider price when reviewing proposals for contracts. Senator Ernst is the ranking member of the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Committee. She tells executive editor Jason Miller why she believes the bill will let agencies push cost reviews back to the task order level. We know that all businesses benefit from acquisition uniformity across the government. So the Department of Defense already does this strategy, um, but a lot of our small businesses would really see a boost if we saw that uniformity across government. So this bill would allow small business owners to bid on valuable contract opportunities based on their actual skill and expertise, rather than forcing those small businesses to compete using more of an arbitrary price competition model that could otherwise exclude qualified and capable small contractors. I think we have some traction on this because it is bipartisan. There is a real hunger with our small businesses to see this opportunity. So we are going to keep working on this. Hopefully we'll be able to get some hearings scheduled on it, bring small business owners in that can talk to this, but you know, would love to see this pass uh, in this upcoming year. You all have been very, very busy on the Senate Small Business Committee, specifically looking at a lot of different government contracting areas over the last year or so. For 2024, what are some of those top government contracting small business priorities that you're interested in? The first one is improve the federal contracting landscape for our small businesses. And one of the other priorities would be to maintain focus on commercialization in the small business innovation research and small business technology transfer programs. So the first one, the federal contracting landscape for small businesses, Federal News Network has actually covered this before, but my Access for Small Businesses Act. And what that essentially does is require federal agencies to increase accessibility of government contracts by making sure that small business contracts are written in very plain language, not in government jargon, so that our small businesses and those very, very busy owners and employees can actually understand what those contracts are for and how to apply for them. It also allows them to achieve an A on their small business scorecard or testify before Congress on why they uh, they failed to do so if they're not you know, expanding access for those small businesses. And then it also makes sure that the Small Business Administration's contracting scorecard measures the health and variety of small businesses, because sometimes we get in a very narrow lane of where we're offering contracts. So we just really want to make sure that through this effort, we're supporting opportunities for small business owners to participate. The second point, Jason, was um, maintaining that focus on these programs, the SBIR, STTR programs. Um, Our innovation ecosystem here in the United States 
is really our, our greatest strategic advantage when we're trying to counter adversaries. And so we're trying to transition small business R&D from labs and garages you know, to innovate equipment in the field. And, and we have to remain focused and have that as the central focus of the SBIR, STTR programs. These programs are going to expire or set to expire in 2025. And so I'm working on legislation to reverse uh, the consolidation of the industrial base by helping small businesses in SBIR, STTR and help them accelerate the commercialization of their critical technologies. I know it's a little wonky. These are really good programs. We want to keep them going and offering these opportunities to small businesses. Let me go start with the last piece when you talk about the SBIR and STTR program. You mentioned the expiration in 2025. I remember it got renewed most recently. There's a lot of concern, uh, I think, with Senator Paul, who was very concerned about these. Do you think a lot of the concerns about the programs, you know, the SBIR mills, the, the too many people winning, you know, but not ever going yep. to commercialization, do you think a lot of those concerns have been satisfied or are being satisfied either through data? Have you all started to look at that a little bit? Well, and I am actually still working through those issues, Jason, because I have seen that trend where there is a consolidation and contracts given to known or existing small businesses, and they continue to receive awards. And what we have seen then is the movement of all of those contracts to those known providers, known entities, and large in part, if you look at where these entities are located, many of these businesses are typically on our coast. So they continue to get award after award after award. They are the ones that are on the East Coast or the West Coast. And we have a large swath of middle America, like where I live in Iowa, where small businesses have just given up on trying to compete against those that have competed for, for years and years and years. They have the system down. They know how to fill out these packets. They know how to get the contracts. And they're squeezing others out that have not been able to secure those contracts. So what we have seen is a consolidation of those awards within individual companies and along our coastlines. So I am still very, very concerned about that. These are good programs, but we want to make sure that this consolidation in the industrial base does not continue and that we are giving opportunity to small businesses all across the United States. I'm glad you brought up the industrial base. I know that's been a big focus of, of Congress, of the Biden administration, of, of previous administrations looking at how do we expand that industrial base. And that brings us back around to your other bill, the, the Improving Small Business uh, Access Act. What are some of the things you see as, as what can be done in the meantime? Are you looking at hearings? Are you looking at letters? Are you having meetings with SBA and others about how to get rid of that government jargon and how to reach out to a broader swath of the small business community, as you said, whether it's on the coast or middle America or wherever? And it is all of the above. And we have to use our leverage as members of Congress to uh, force the discussion sometimes through letters, 
through meetings and phone calls with uh, officials over at the Small Business Administration, but also getting the information from our constituents. We can never forget that we represent our own states. We have the small businesses within our own communities, and we need to know from their perspective, what is the right way to move forward? What are those obstacles that the federal government has thrown into your path that maybe we can help you navigate, whether you have to go around it, over it, below it, whatever it is. We need to figure out a way for those small businesses to be able to work with the federal government. Hearings are always very important. That is something that uh, Chairwoman uh, Jean Shaheen and I have been working on. Uh, I do have to say it's been a little tough communicating with the Small Business Administration. When Ben Cardin was the chair, we ran into roadblocks at every opportunity. Even when we were acting in a bipartisan manner, we would have letters that were not responded to or even acknowledged uh, at the SBA. So it has been tough. When you have an agency that, as we move through this administration, is ever pulling away from what we as representatives from our own states believe would be the best opportunity for small businesses. We have an SBA that is not engaging as much as they should. Iowa Senator Joni Ernst, ranking member of the Small Business and Entrepreneurship Committee, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Later on, check out Jason's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences, 
And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. 
and I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision, and it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including Um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year 
and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, It's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.